Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Well, think about what Paul's been saying so far about joy and rejoicing in Philippians. This word keeps coming up over and over again. Back in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he thanked God for the Philippians making his prayer with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. He rejoiced in chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is preached whether in pretense or in truth. He rejoices in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, in his ultimate salvation through the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. He sees his continued work in the flesh as necessary for their progress and joy in the faith in chapter 1, verse 25. So he sees their joy as being bound up. This is their progress and joy in the faith. He sees joy as being bound up in the, in the gospel going forth. Now in chapter 2, he calls them to complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, Paul's joy will be incomplete as long as the Philippians are not, don't have that same mindset, that same way of thinking that Jesus has brought. Indeed, that was the heart of, of chapter 2 because he then at the end of chapter 2 would talks in chapter 2 verse 17 about how he rejoices with them that he may be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial liturgy of their faith and calls them to rejoice with him in this as well that his 
being poured out as a drink offering. His, his ending his life as in, 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 this, in this pursuit of Christ. That their, their offering of their, of their faith, his being poured out, all of this brings joy to Paul and to the Philippians. And through all of this, Paul now concludes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you can perhaps see from this that rejoicing in the Lord doesn't have a whole lot to do with what today we call happiness. Rejoicing in the Lord has to do with the gospel of Jesus. It comes in the midst of suffering, death, and the cross. That, that doesn't sound very happy. But rejoicing in the Lord is all about having the mind of Christ. A mindset that sees that the only path to glory is the path of the cross. Is being conformed to the likeness of Christ's sufferings. Is being conformed to the likeness of Jesus and passing through, joining, being joined to his, his life and thus to his death. That we might be joined to his resurrection life. This is why Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, Paul's saying, I, I, I realize, I may be repeating myself, but I want to give you one more example of what it means to have the mind of Christ. And it starts with an abrupt warning. In one sense, chapter 3, verse 1, it sounds like Paul's wrapping things up. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. But then he says, but to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, I got one more for you. And we're really thankful that Paul did because if he had stopped at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2 was great, but chapter 3 brings it home in a new way. Look out for the dogs. You know, like, it felt like whiplash when you get there. Yeah, it's kind of whiplash. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we saw earlier in Philippians that Paul rejoices when Christ is preached, whether from good motives or bad. So what he's talking about now is not anything resembling preaching Christ. This is not good news that he's objecting to. He uses three terms for these people. He says, first, look out for the dogs. Now, dog is, is not just used as an insult. Today, if you call somebody a dog, you're just being mean. In Paul's day, to call someone a dog is to call them a Gentile. In Matthew, or rather Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus calls this uh, a Syro, Seraphonician woman a dog. He wasn't insulting her, and she didn't take it as an insult. He was saying, you're a Gentile. And she says, you're right, I'm a dog. Gentiles are called dogs because they're outside the covenant community. Paul is saying that these particular people he's warning about, and it's going to become pretty clear that these are Jews that he's warning about, these Jews he calls dogs. They are outside of God's covenant community. They are unclean. Not in a technical sense. When, when you go through the book of Leviticus, you see all the clean, unclean stuff. He's saying, I'm not saying they're unclean in the sense of Leviticus. They are unclean really and at the heart because they've missed the point of the law entirely. 
You can keep the ceremonial law perfectly and still be unclean if you've missed the point of the law. And he secondly says, look out for the evildoers. And that doesn't just mean people who do bad things, but it's particularly workers of evil. These Jewish teachers claim to be doing works of the law. But in fact, Paul says, they are doing works of evil. And to understand what this means, the the third one gets to us to the heart. They are those who mutilate the flesh. This is actually one word in Greek. They are the mutilation. Watch out for the mutilation. The katatome. Uh, the word for circumcision is paratome. And the, the, the Judaizers were sometimes called the paratome, the circumcision party. But Paul says, they are not the circumcision. They are the mutilation. When Jewish Christians require Gentile converts to be circumcised, Paul says, they're no longer the circumcision, they're the mutilation. They, they, are, they are no better than the barbaric customs of the pagans. So these Judaizers, these who are trying to get sort of Gentile Christians to become Jews, they are, in Paul's view, they're the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilation. And in contrast, Paul says, he says, we are the circumcision. What does it mean to be the circumcision? He says, well, verse 3, it means those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's a sense in which these three things are put in contrast with the three things that he said, talked about the dogs, the workers of evil, the mutilation, Well, we are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul had been accused of rejecting the Old Testament, but Paul is saying, actually, the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The New Testament church is not a parenthesis. It's it's not like, like, oh, we'll just sort of bracket this for a while. But rather, he says... We are the circumcision. We are the continuing people of God. It's not as though the church has replaced Israel. The church is Israel. And even as there were three things to watch out for, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilation, there are three things that identify the circumcision, the, the, those who, who are the true worshipers of God. First, those who worship by the Spirit of God. Think of what, Paul, uh, what Jesus says in John chapter 4 when he says that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. When, when Jesus says true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, this is not talking about internal versus external. Rather, they're talking about the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of Christ has brought a new age of salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the sign of this new redemption. Those who belong to Christ are a part of this new order. They have the Spirit of God and are thus able to offer worship that is pleasing to God. And Paul says this because this is what the prophets had said would characterize the people of God. God had said in Ezekiel 36 that He would take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. That He would give them His Spirit. God had promised the prophet Joel that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Indeed, 
we celebrate the day of Pentecost next Sunday, that of precisely what God had promised. The, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost demonstrates that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and has sat down on the throne of his father David. And so those who worship in the Holy Spirit are the circumcision. I mean, if, if, if you have missed the point of circumcision, then your circumcision isn't worth the foreskin that was snipped off. If you think about it, snipped off foreskins aren't worth very much, except uh, when Saul was asking for you know, a certain number of Philistine foreskins. But foreskins aren't worth much. But if you miss the point of circumcision, your circumcision isn't worth the foreskin that was snipped off. It's the Paul, Paul makes this point in Romans 4 when he says that, that circumcision was the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith before he was circumcised. So the circumcision are those who, who worship by the Spirit of God. And secondly, what characterizes this, this true circumcision is that we are those who, who glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, the term here is actually to boast in Christ Jesus. And actually, it's helpful to see these two points together because point three, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Where's our confidence? Well, the mutilation puts their confidence in the flesh. They boast of their descent from Abraham. Their confidence is their fleshly circumcision. But Paul says... The true circumcision does not put confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision glories in Christ Jesus, boasts in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul's playing off of Jeremiah chapter 9 here. Because in Jeremiah 9, uh, you can see how all this fits together because Jeremiah is proclaiming the, the coming destruction upon Jerusalem and says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, in the Septuagint, that's the same word that Paul uses here. Do not boast in the flesh. Do not boast in your wisdom, your might, your riches. Rather, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. When you know the Lord, then you know him as the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And it's worth noting that when Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 9, he goes on to say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Why am I so convinced that Paul is playing off of Jeremiah 9? Because, well, Paul's using all the language of Jeremiah 9. When God says, I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Jeremiah says that Israel is no better than the nations around them. The fact, it's the same point Paul makes. The fact that you're circumcised in the flesh does not guarantee blessing. If you're not circumcised in heart, then you're no better than a Gentile dog. And then Paul gets personal. He says, look at me. 
I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. You think you got reason for confidence in the flesh? I got more. Now he's going to embark on a little bit of boasting, you might say. And point out that his boasting wasn't worth... Well, he focuses on his birth heritage. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's got, a, he's got an excellent pedigree. He's, he's not, he doesn't come from one of those Hellenizing families that sort of just... Uh, no, he, he, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Judaizers often boasted of their credentials. And Paul's saying, hey, you want credentials? I got credentials. As to the law, a Pharisee. I realize nowadays we're like, oh, Pharisee. In Paul's day, Pharisees are the cream of the crop. Pharisees, this is, this, this, Pharisee is not a poo-poo word. Pharisee is a term of respect and praise. We often speak of the Pharisees as legalists and hypocrites. But in Paul's day, Pharisees were the pinnacle of religious achievement. They're the orthodox party, the godly folks, those who take the law seriously and seek to obey it. So as to the law, a Pharisee. I'm gonna, yeah. Be, nowadays we're like, an evangelical. A conservative. This is sort of a badge of honor in their community. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. No one was more zealous for the purity of Jerusalem than Saul of Tarsus. Now again, today we look at this as a black mark on his record, but you have to remember, God had judged Israel for their failure to deal with those who turned away from him. When Saul of Tarsus looks at the early Christians... He sees a group that's abandoning the law of God. His zeal for the Lord was demonstrated by his persecuting those Jesus followers. And in the Jewish community of his day, ah, Saul of Tarsus, he's, uh, here's our hero. He's the one who's, he's, he's the guy. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, uh, the word blameless does not mean sinless. No Jew would have claimed absolute moral perfection before God. Paul is not talking about his conscience here. He's talking about his credentials. His point is, go back to Tarsus, go back to Jerusalem, go back to Damascus, inquire of anyone, you will find that my observance of the law was spotless. This is just a standard way of describing faithful and observant Jews. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as blameless by Luke in Luke chapter 1 verse 6. The righteousness under the law of which Paul speaks is an observable, demonstrable righteousness. It is a way of life prescribed by God. And Paul's saying, I was blameless. You can check me up on this. You can go back and talk to anybody back there. Nobody's going to contradict me. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But it's not just a, a, a way of talking about Jews under the Old Testament law. After all, Paul has just said in chapter 2, verse 13, of, of, of verse 15 of, of Philippians, what did he say they should be? Blameless and pure. This, 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 this term blameless is not, is not a... Oh, we don't really think that. No, Paul, Paul says, no, we, we should still be blameless and pure before the watching world. The quality of blamelessness 
cannot be pejoratively described as mere outward righteousness. The reason why Paul will repudiate his blamelessness before the law is because the righteousness that comes from the law is not worth comparing with the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Now listen to this carefully. Paul is not saying that there is no righteousness that comes from the law. He just said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You can be blameless before the law. You can attain to all that the law prescribes. And what does that get you? Nothing. Yeah, that's what Paul says. We need to listen to Paul here. Too often, we seem to talk and think as though the law could not bring righteousness. That's not the problem that Paul's talking about here. The problem that Paul's talking about here is that the righteousness that the law can bring can't bring life. I realize, in one sense, it's the same problem. I mean, after all, if... If all the righteousness that the law can bring, if all I can get you is, you're dead, too bad, bye. Well, that's not a righteousness that's worth all that much now, is it? And Paul's like, right, exactly. It's not a righteousness that's worth anything. Because a righteousness that ends in death and no resurrection? Okay, what kind of righteousness is that? But notice, Paul's not saying it's not as... He says, as to righteousness under the law. Blameless. I did everything the law said. I was... Which you might want to... Really, Paul? But he's... Let's let's take him seriously for a minute. What's he saying here? The righteousness that comes from the law cannot bring life. Now, this is Paul's whole point in Galatians 3, where he goes through this in much greater detail. The inheritance, Paul says in Galatians 3.18, does not come by the law. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The problem with the righteousness of the law is that it doesn't bring life. The law, Paul says in Galatians 3, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Or as the book of Hebrews will tell us, the problem was that the law itself could not bring blamelessness. The the, the law itself was flawed. We needed Christ because the law could not bring life. We needed a new covenant because the blood of bulls and goats prescribed in the first covenant could not remove sin. And that's why Paul repudiates the blamelessness, the righteousness that he had through the law. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, stop, rewind. Back to Jeremiah 9. Remember what we just heard? Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And now Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jeremiah had said, know the Lord. 
Paul agrees, know the Lord. What does it mean to know the Lord? Know Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's prescription for the problems in the Philippian church is doctrine. You need to get your theology straight. If you're going to avoid the the, the perils of the Judaizers, if you're going to be of one mind, if you're going to have the mind of Christ, then you need to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now when I say... It's a, you know, know your theology. It's not just stuffing your head with propositions. But you need to know Jesus. And knowing Jesus means, well, pay attention to what we just heard in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You must understand that this one who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. You need to know the incarnation. The eternal Son of God humbled Himself. He came in the form of a servant. In the incarnation, God took to Himself our human flesh and atoned for our sins with His own precious blood. Now, the language of Philippians 2 runs all the way through chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 here. The word count was used in chapter 2, verse 3. Count others more significant than yourselves, as well as chapter 2, verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul now says, I count these things as loss. Verse 8, I count everything as loss. Paul is acting in imitation of Christ because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I count these things as loss. Likewise, the word form was used in verse 6 of chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he took the form of a servant. Now Paul uses the same root in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, I want to be conformed to Christ's death. Likewise, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul said that Christ was found as a man. Now in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, I want to be found in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said, Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, here, verse 8, Paul confesses, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And if all these verbal parallels aren't enough, the structure of verses 7 through 10 here is built around the pattern of renunciation of past privilege followed by humiliation and death leading to resurrection and exaltation. In other words, the same pattern, the same mind that he said in chapter 2 is what we, is our, the mind that we have in Christ is now my mind as I renounce my past privilege and I now want to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. If you want to have the mind of Christ, it means renouncing your past privilege, enduring the cross so that you might be conformed to the likeness of Christ in his death and thus also in his resurrection glory. And for his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, scubala is a... Um, it's, it's not a polite word. I mean, rubbish, that's, a, that's the deal. Even dung falls a little short here since dung is the word we use in agricultural settings. Seriously, crap or shit would work a lot better. The only question is whether Paul's point is these things are revolting or simply worthless. Now, it's, it's not that he thinks his Jewish heritage was all that awful in itself. 
It's that in comparison with Christ, everything else is worthless and revolting. Think of 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul speaks of the glory of the Old Covenant as being no glory compared with the glory of Christ. Why? In order that I may, be, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What did I have before? Oh, I had, according to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. What did that get me? Nothing. I'm going to die like everybody else. What's, what is that? There's no life that comes that from... But what do I have in Christ? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. Nothing else matters. Think of Jesus' parable of the the pearl of great price in Matthew 13. The merchant sells everything he has so he can buy this pearl. When When you think about that story, that story makes no sense. The merchant is going to buy this most valuable pearl. He sells everything. And so now what has he got? He got this pearl. I mean, it's kind of cool, right? What are you going to do with it? You can't eat it. And if you're going to keep it, you can't sell it. So what are you going to do with it? I mean, if, if you're just thinking in economic terms, the parable makes no sense. But what Jesus is saying is, do you understand what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about how you're going to make a living. I'm not talking about... How, I'm talking about that thing that is worth more than anything else. And Paul here says, what is that thing? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. He became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that He is by grace. Christ was found in human form so that we might be found in Him. This is the basic underlying principle of our union with Christ that Paul refers to over and over again. And there there are three things that Paul sees flowing out of this union with Christ. It's Verse 9 is really talking about our justification. Verse 10 is talking about our sanctification. Verse 11 is talking about our glorification. In verse 9, we have one of the most clear, unambiguous statements that the righteousness from God is a righteousness that we now have. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says that to be found in Christ means that you have a righteousness which comes through faith in Him. As we are found in Christ, we have our righteousness through faith in Him. Here, this is not the, the, the righteousness whereby God Himself is righteous, but the righteousness which we have by faith. When I am found in Christ, when I am united to Him, I have a righteousness. I, I, this is, it, it's, no longer, it's, no, it's no longer I who live, but 
Christ who lives in me. And he shows us here that, that our justification, our righteousness is not one that is from ourselves, but is from Christ. And the second thing that Paul sees as connected with our union with Christ is our sanctification. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Notice that Paul here wants to know first and foremost, I want to know Christ. It's not just, I want to be a better person. I want to know Christ. If, if he is not the first thing that you want to know, you might need to rethink your priorities. And if Christ is the first thing for you, how are you demonstrating this in your daily life? Is he really first? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings? I mean, to know Christ means not just, it's not just intellectual knowledge that you're building up. It's to know him and being conformed to his likeness, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And notice that Paul also says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Throughout Philippians, Paul has been emphasizing the knowledge that is essential for our sanctification. Because you're not really going to grow in grace if you're not growing in knowledge. Growing in grace and growing in knowledge always go together for Paul. Of course, there's, there's the, the problem of people who are always studying and never doing. But my observation is that those who are seeking to know Christ in the manner that Paul describes here are invariably the most active Christians in the life of the church. Because knowing the power of Christ's resurrection is nothing less than experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit, who after all is the presence of the resurrected Christ with his people. The resurrected Christ has poured out his spirit on his church. The power of the exalted Messiah is at work in you. And so Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings as we are conformed to his likeness, as we participate in the, the death and, and burial of Christ, and as he identified with us in his incarnation, we identify with him. We are united with his death, first in our baptism, but then this definitive breach with sin must be worked out throughout the whole life of the believer. Becoming like him in his death is simply another way of saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 11 then emphasizes our final sanctification in glorification. As Paul had said in Romans 8, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And here Paul is emphasizing the need for perseverance. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever it takes, that's what I'll do. The only way to glory is the way of the cross. Knowing the fellowship of Christ's suffering, being conformed to the likeness of His death, is the only way to glory. That as we endure the cross, as we take the same pattern, the same mindset of Christ, it, that's, that's what it means. And that's, that's what Paul shows as he takes what he's just said in Philippians 2 and now fleshed it out in his own life, saying... I had it I had it all. I had it great. But what was that? It was shit. 
compared to knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Everything else, all that was be, all that was back there, worth nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord, help us, because we forget these things, and we too easily turn aside from knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We too easily forget and are content with our confidence in the flesh. And we have all these privileges that we rely on, these things in our lives that we think are enough. And we acknowledge before you that these things are worth nothing compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so help us, Father, to have this same mind that is ours in Christ Jesus, that for his sake we might suffer the loss of all things and count them as dung, as crap, in order that we may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Help us to know your beloved Son. Help us to know the power of his resurrection. Help us as we seek to walk before you that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Grant that that as we walk before you this day that you would help us by your Holy Spirit because we need your Spirit, your power, your wisdom if we are to walk before you. Help us in our, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, in each place where you put us. Grant that we might keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, that we might know him, that we might seek to know you, to seek your face day by day. Lord, have mercy upon us as, as a people and that as a, as a church, we might bear witness to Jesus before the watching world that, that they might see the glory of Jesus revealed in us, that they might see that through our suffering and through our endurance and patience before you, you might continue to bring forth your gospel, send forth your word to the, to the nations, that those who walk in darkness might see the, the light of your beloved Son, the one who sits at your right hand. For we pray in his name. Amen.